So I wanted to begin by um, just um, stating the obvious, which is that Rodney's not joining us tonight. He uh, has a cold, as he said this morning, and not to worry, he's not super sick or anything like that. He just needs a night to relax and go to bed a little bit earlier, and uh, coming from the West Coast and picking up a cold probably on the plane and and all of that. So anyway, he'll join us tomorrow um, in the morning. I'm happy that he can rest. I um, I wanted him here tonight so I could tease him. <laughs> and I can't talk behind his back, so I just have to be patient. Anyway, I would like to talk about the topic of joy tonight, of meditative joy. And I want to begin with something by Ajahn Chah called The Problems of the World. And this is very interesting to me because he said this a long time ago, so remember that. You know, it sounds like he's talking in this time now. So remember that he said this a long time ago when I read this. He said, many people, particularly educated, professional people, are moving out of the big cities, seeking quieter living and simpler livelihood in the small towns and rural areas. This is natural. If you grab a handful of mud and squeeze it, it will ooze through your fingers. People under pressure likewise seek a way out. People ask me about the problems of our world, about a coming apocalypse. I ask, what does it mean to be worldly? What is the world? You do not know. This very unknowing, this very darkness, this very place of ignorance is what is meant by worldly. Caught in the six senses, our knowledge develops as a part of this darkness. To come to an answer to the problems of the world, we must know its nature completely and realize the wisdom that shines above the darkness of the world. These days, it seems that our culture is deteriorating, lost in greed, hatred, and delusion. But the culture of the Buddha never changes never diminishes. It says, do not lie to others or to ourselves. Do not steal from others or from ourselves. Worldly culture has desire as its director and guide. The culture of the Buddha has compassion and dharma or truth as its guide. I'm going to add a word. The culture of the Buddha has compassion, joy, Dharma or truth as its guide. So, this is what I want to talk about tonight. Um, everyone knows Tignat Han, affectionately known as Thai by his students. One of his students <coughs> came to sp- speak with me at a certain point. And um, she told me this really interesting thing. She said that on September 12th, 2001, he told everybody to go to the beach. He told his monastics, 
his um, lay practitioners and his his male monastics and female monastics to go spend the day at the beach. Yeah? The whole country being so shocked on September 11th, 2001. And this is what he told everybody to do, was go to the beach. Yeah? He said that we have to nourish joy. In the worst of situations, we have to nourish joy. The news these days is dire, and I'm certainly not going to go through a list of what that means. But we all know what that means, that, that we're hearing about extraordinarily painful and challenging and bitter, bitter things happening. And at the same time, in the midst of having such exposure to the world through the news and travel and friends and family and so much interconnection these days that didn't used to be. At the same time, our personal sorrows don't change. You know? We hear such really painful things about the world, but it doesn't mean that a personal loss that we might have just experienced isn't shaking us to our very roots. You know, we hear and we resonate and we, we feel empathy and compassion and um, sorrow for the sorrows of others. But it doesn't mean that someone in our family who is really suffering doesn't affect us deeply. So it's not as if our personal lives, our personal sorrows, we don't get distracted from them because of the news in the world. We're having to live with it all, the world within the world around us, the world of family, the world of friends, the world of transition. You know, all of it is ours to hold. And yet, we are called to joy. We are called to gladdening the heart. Mahagosananda, whom some of you know and know that I knew in quite beautiful ways when he was alive, he said this, if we cannot be happy in spite of our difficulties, what good is our spiritual practice? This is really great. You know? This is really brilliant. He was a really wise man. And he experienced enormous sorrow in his life. And yet he was an incredibly joyful person. When I knew him, he was kind of like bouncing around with joy. I would say that there was a buoyancy to him that was extraordinarily joyful. If we cannot be happy in spite of our difficulties, what good is our spiritual practice. It's a call. You know, it's a call to gladdening the heart in the midst of how things are, whatever way they are. Meditative joy, spiritual joy, not the way the word joy is conventionally used, is not and I want to use a few cliches here. 
or common phrases. Joy is not fiddling while Rome burns. That's not joy. That is indifference. Joy is not ostrich mind. Being like an ostrich, putting your head in the sand and pretending and denying that the world isn't, isn't the way it is or one is not experiencing what one is experiencing. You know, it's not closing one's heart to the immensity of pain and sorrow in this world. That's fear. And it's disengagement. And it's disconnection. And it's totally not what the Buddha offered us. Disconnection. Totally not. It's also not trying to see through rose-colored glasses. You know, like, like just trying to tell yourself everything's okay, everything's okay, everything's okay. Or to um, not really see the full extent of what we go through on this earth. That's denial, seeing through rose-colored glasses. So that's not joy. That's not meditative joy. What we can truly know within our own hearts Meditative joy is an essential quality of the heart. I would even say it's an intrinsic quality of heart. And it is equal to love. It is equal to compassion. It is equal to wisdom and equanimity. It's not less than. We cannot afford to do without it. On the other hand, it's a word, you know, it's just a word. And anytime you use a word, all of our conditioning rushes in and sticks to it and makes it into um, whatever our previous experiences have been. It's a word. And the actuality, of course, is different than a word. Sometimes I do use the word wonder instead of joy. Yeah? Sometimes that resonates because um, we kind of wonder about the word wonder. You know, we think we know what joy is, but wonder is a little bit kind of moving, moving in um, perhaps mysterious ways. So the word wonder might be a better word for you to resonate with as I speak. I'm going to keep using the word joy, but... Um, just as a as a way for you to uh, kind of connect in. Joy is gladness of heart in the midst of things as they are, in the midst of the beautiful, in the midst of the terrible, in the midst of the ordinary. This is a very short sutta. Actually, it's from the Dhammapada. Live in love, in joy, even among those who hate. Live in joy, in health, even among the afflicted. Live in joy, in peace, even among the troubled. Let go of winning and losing and find joy. 
There is no fire like craving, no crime like hatred, no sorrow like separation, no sickness like hunger of the heart, and no joy like the joy of freedom. Contentment and trust are your greatest possessions, and freedom your greatest joy. Look within, be still, free from fear and attachment, know the sweet joy of the way. Look within, be still, free from fear and attachment, know the sweet joy of the way. The sage feeds on joy. The wise person feeds on joy, is guided by joy, is moved by joy, is resonant with joy. This is by Marie Howe called My Dead Friends. I have begun when I'm weary and can't decide an answer to a bewildering question, to ask my dead friends for their opinion. And the answer is often immediate and clear. Should I take the job, move to the city? Should I try to conceive a child in my middle age? They stand in unison, shaking their heads and smiling. Whatever leads to joy, they always answer. To more life and less worry. I look into the vase where Billy's ashes were. It's green in there, a green vase. And I ask Billy if I should return the difficult phone call, and he says yes. Billy's already gone through the frightening door. Whatever he says, I'll do. Guided, inwardly guided, inwardly inspired, resonant, with joy, we pick up so many burdens and we have to see how heavy they are before we can put them down. You know, we don't know why to put them down or how to put them down until we're willing to feel their, their heft, feel their, their heaviness. And then in the willingness They are put down, and there's a sense of greater ease and greater lightness. Have you ever felt joy in the midst of something extraordinarily painful, extraordinarily difficult in your life? If you have, I would imagine that it's surprising. You know, there's a sense of surprise when everything's falling apart around you. And yet, there is something that we might call joy. Maybe we call it wonder. Maybe we call it entering into the mystery. But certainly, how could this be happening? in the very midst of loss and change and challenge and difficulty and pain, and yet it is. When this happens, it happens because of contact, 
because we are forced into presentness. We are forced into the here and now in a way that in times when we're not feeling so pushed to the edge or, or challenged by conditions, we can feel like we've got all the time in the world to be present when we feel like it. You know, when it's a good moment, I'll be present. When after I've finished this particular fantasy, I'll be present. Next retreat is a really good time (laughs) to be present. We're always putting it off. We have these crunch moments, however, where we can't put it off. We are forced into the present because the past doesn't hold anything for us. You know, it just isn't, um, doesn't hold anything. Maybe our memories have turned painful instead of pleasant, so they're not a good realm of fantasy anymore. Or the future is so uncertain, we just have no idea what it will be like. And we don't really want to go there in terms of imagining it. And so we're forced into the present, and there is where joy can be found. Sometimes when we're forced, these are the times that we discover joy, a spontaneous joy bubbling over within the heart. The past and the future lose their significance. It's not that we don't still learn from the past. Of course we do. Of course we do. It's not that we might not still hopefully have a vision for the future. Of course we do. It's not a frozen present. But our thoughts about the past and the future lose their seeming significance. They become less important to us. And there's a natural cessation of inner dialogue and inner, um, inner sound. You know, we're naturally in a deeper sense of silence. Rodney and I have a a very dear friend who died about a a month ago now. Matthew was um, very, I would say, privileged to to meet her before she died uh, a while ago as well. And she was a really remarkable, remarkable person. I might talk about her in a couple of days from now, too, because I, I have a lot to say. I'm dedicating this retreat to her. But she was a, a dear friend over many, many years, and she was a true practitioner. She had a heart of <coughs> generosity. And she was a deep contemplative, a deep practitioner. So I was able to see her not that long before she passed away. Went over to the hospice where she was and was able to have a visit. And I really felt like, boy, you know, I felt like the luckiest person in the world, actually, that I was able to to um, to see her before she died. I had wanted that so much. And it just happened that, that this happened. 
So I sat down with her and she's dying, right? She wants the headlines. You know? She wants me to tell her a bit about the news. She wants me to fill her in on my companion. You know? She wants to know about my life. I'm thinking, you know, let's talk about you. <laughs> and there was no deflection. It's not like she didn't want to talk about herself because um, she did. We did speak about her and her process. But, um, but just um, such, a, such a vibrant, open um, way of being, so intimate and so connected, and so much like how things had always been in our life together. You know, so, so weak and so this and so that, but completely luminous, completely luminous. You know, her whole being, her whole face was, was bright and, and clear and, and happy. You know, my point is that she looked really happy, really joyful. I asked her about anxiety and fear. You know, are you experiencing anxiety and fear? And she was always so great because she was so human, you know. She said to me that, um, yes, of course, you know, it arises. It arises. And when it arises, I just, um, I hold it um, by saying, this is how it is. You know, just simple. Just simple. This is how it is. And then it doesn't take hold of me. It just does what it does. It shifts, it changes. It's impermanent, you know. This is how it is. And just that calmness. And, and because of her life in the practice of decades and depth and dedication and experience, um, I just, you know, I knew that this was a phrase that she had used throughout her life. Because we have touch, touchstones in our lives. We have, we have Dharma teachings that are our touchstones. And they're different for, for, for each one of us. We may share a bunch, but they're also different, and you have to find your own. And for her, one of her touchstones was, this is how it is. Yeah. Yeah. In the crunch of things, dying with joy. She also said that um, she felt a universal um, love for everybody that she uh, had dropped all of her grudges. <laughs> and she just felt in love with everyone. This is joy in the midst of. Not after, not when, not if. It's joy in the midst of. Joy is distinct from pleasure. Pleasure comes and goes. It's unreliable. There's nothing wrong with it. And we can't hang on. We can't live moment to moment in pleasure. We actually can live moment to moment in joy. Because meditative joy is unconditioned. It is not concocted. It is not creative. It's joy without an object. It's not, I'm experiencing joy because of this or that. It's not dependent on an object. Meditative joy is not dependent on a condition. 
It's not dependent on an object or things being the way we want them to be or even need them to be. No, it's independent. Nisargadatta Maharaj said this, he said, the bliss is in the full awareness of both pleasure and pain, not shrinking or in any way turning away. All happiness comes from awareness. The more we are conscious, the deeper the joy. Acceptance of pleasure, acceptance of pain, non-resistance, courage, and endurance. These open deep and perennial sources of true happiness, real bliss. The pleasant, the unpleasant, the painful, the difficult, the ordinary, the mundane, meditative joy. You know, the sutta I was reading before about live in joy, even among those who hate, etc., 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 it's inevitable. If we keep practicing, you can say, I don't want to be joyful. It will happen anyway. (laughs) You can resist it all you want, and it won't matter, because it's inevitable opening on this path, on this way can't not be so. It comes unbidden and uninvited. We can't make it happen because it's already here. We can't hold on to it because there's no need to hold on to it. It's a byproduct of freedom and of wisdom. When the heart is at least relatively free of its torments, of greed, hatred, and delusion. There is the emergence of joy. The more we let go, the more joy. The more we put down, the more joy. The more we allow and accept, the more joy. So we can't make it happen, and we can incline the mind in the direction of joy. And so I want to speak a little bit about inclining the mind. To incline the mind in the direction of, of joy is to perhaps, first of all, understand what scientists talk about these days called the negativity bias. Yeah. Some of you are familiar with this, and it's such an interesting thing to keep in mind, that you can go through the day and have one good experience after another, or one pleasant experience after another, and then 3 p.m. in the afternoon, one small bad thing happens, and you're crushed. You know? And that's what the mind hangs on to. So this is, this is called the negativity bias. Rick Hansen, um, who teaches Dharma from a scientific point of view, he says the brain is like Velcro for negative experiences and Teflon for positive ones. 
it's just, it's just, it's just, um, I think helps to remember, to remember this. I have a number of friends who are authors, and so they get their books reviewed, and, um, you know, there can be like, and they're good, you know, they're good books, and so there can be um, many reviews, the five stars, and then they get one three star, or even a four star, you know, and they're, they're like, wow, you know, it just, it just affects one more than the, more than all the five stars do. It's just the way the brain works, and to be aware of this. The body reacts more intensely to negative stimuli than to equally strong stimuli. And so we just have to be aware of this and and, um, make peace with this fact and see if we can know it's happening when it's happening. Inclining the mind towards the worldly winds, meaning praise and success and gain and pleasure and fame. When I spoke the other day, I spoke to a a few of you afterwards and and somehow the message had been taken away that uh, we're not supposed to like um, these, these five, you know. (laughs) <laughs> that we're, because we prefer them, and we do prefer them, there's something wrong with them, or there's something bad about them. And I think this is the negativity bias actually at, at work. But it's interesting to look at um, these worldly wins and to, of course, allow them to blow through, not be attached, not be stuck, but as well use them as conditions to liberate the heart. For instance, praise, appreciation, appreciating the ways that we are moving in our practice. This is really important. It's really important to be able to do that. You know, teachers or friends may be able to reflect it for you, but it's important to do it yourself as well, to appreciate the differences that you see because of dedication to the practice, and to praise others as well. Shantideva said, Praise all who speak the truth and say, Your words are excellent. And when you notice others acting well, encourage them in terms of warm approval. Now, we could do that more. We could do that with each other more. It's a beautiful thing to be able to approve of and praise and appreciate um, the beauty in one another, to appreciate the the path, to appreciate the way, to appreciate um, one's own beauties and strengths and not veer away from that as if it's a mistake or it's not really, really real. And to be able to do that with others as well. Success and gain, it's wonderful when someone succeeds. We ourselves or or others around us succeed at something that we've been working hard at. It's a beautiful thing, whatever the realm might be. Gain, of course, when there's been something missing and there's a gain in some way, it's a wonderful thing. 
pleasure can be a really helpful thing in a practice, right? Yeah, like we're not supposed to, um, when there's a lot of pain, um, it's not advised to focus on that pain as your anchor, as your primary object of attention. Now, of course, we need to open to it, we need to explore it, but it's not advisable to actually make it into your object of, of attention in terms of, of your refuge, you know, what you go back to over and over again. And there's reason for this, because, of course, there's going to be some way that there will be potentially contraction or tension. And pleasure helps us to relax. You know, it's only the attachment to pleasure that becomes a problem, that creates suffering, that causes suffering, but not pleasure coming and going. It's a natural aspect of life. And it can help with relaxation, and relaxation helps with going deeper into the practice in terms of what might feel difficult or going into greater beauty or growing into greater depth, whatever it might be. So not to be afraid of, of pleasure. And fame, I don't know what to say about that. I mean, you know, I know there are these horrible things that happen on social media these days in terms of fame. People tell me about them. But the Dalai Lama has used fame really well, right? He has helped so many people in being as well-known as he has. And there are so many other people. I'm just mentioning him. So it's not fame itself, it's how we use these, um, these qualities, these, these conditions. It's how we use these worldly winds to liberate the heart. If we're skillful, we can use them. We don't have to be afraid. We can also incline the mind towards mudita, Sympathetic joy. Happiness for the happinesses of one another. And we can we can really you know, we can really veer in this direction. Joy for the joy of others. Voltaire said, Appreciation is a wonderful thing. It makes what is excellent in others belong to us as well. My older sister just got a puppy <laughs> yesterday. And this would be a nice thing anyway, but she lost her husband, my beloved brother-in-law, in the end of August. And she's been in really the deepest of grief with this profound loss in her life. And, you know, we're very close and um, so I, you know, I can feel it. I can, I can, it's tangible, it's really feelable. And so this, this whole thing about getting a puppy, it, it, it kind of had much more um, to it, you know, than should I get a puppy or not, which I know is a big decision anyway. This is what I hear. But, um, but for her, it was really a, a big decision, you know, because she's kind of confused right now. She doesn't know. She's lost her mooring. You know, she's lost the ground under, under her feet. And so how to kind of restabilize. And living alone now, you know, so, um, so a puppy um, not, not ha- being as lonely and having company and um, having to go outside to walk the puppy and, 
everything that some of you know has to do with raising a puppy. <laughs> so she, um, everybody's got their opinions. I have a very opinionated family, you know. <laughs> So everybody's giving their opinion about what kind of, of dog and should she do it and shouldn't she do it and if she does it, it's a problem and if she, you know, if she doesn't, she's got to do it. She absolutely has to do it kind of thing. And her grandchildren, you know, ecstatic at the thought of a puppy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just, just like over the moon. So she decided finally, I mean, she got she got this puppy yesterday and I just can't tell you how happy I am about this puppy. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't met her yet. Um, her name is Maddie, <laughs> which many of us know, um, a beloved Madeline. <laughs> so I have to get used to that. But her happiness is my happiness. You know, her sorrow is my sorrow. And her happiness is, um, I just feel, feel really happy about, um, about this little puppy. And, and, she really never lost the we, you know, when, when her husband was alive. It was always, many times it was we instead of I. And then in the time in between, she was trying to, you know, kind of shift a little bit and turn, into, turn it into an I because oftentimes it didn't make a whole lot of sense saying we. And so she realized, I can say we again. <laughs> I really love that. So I'm, you know, like, How's the, how are the two of you? You know, <laughs> and they're adjusting to each other. And, but she she knows she made the right decision, and I'm really happy about that. That there's no no ambivalence there. Mudita is sometimes difficult in this culture, because it is such a competitive culture. There doesn't always seem to be enough joy to go around. If one person has joy, it feels like maybe someone else will miss out. But that's not the nature of unconditioned joy. Compassion is usually a little bit easier. You know, our hearts go out when somebody is in pain, when we meet someone's sorrow. But joy is equally essential. Equally essential. And there's such a beautiful cycle, you know, because when joy begins bubbling up in our own hearts, we do... Um, Kind of, kind of, just spontaneously want to share it, and then it goes in the other direction. When we feel mudita for someone else's joys and successes and and beauties and and gains and pleasures and all of that, then it comes back on us. It becomes our own. So it's inclining the mind towards. It's a cycle. It's a beautiful cycle. There's a great mudita phrase that Christina Feldman shared with me. It's a, um, it's a translation um, from a Sri Lankan text. And here it is. And, you know, you, gotta, you have to really open to this because um, some of you might, might gag a tiny bit. <laughs> it's just a lot. But it's really good. So wide open here. How wonderful you are in your being. I delight that you are here. May your happiness deepen and your good fortune continue. Can you say that to yourself? And can you um, share that with others? How wonderful you are in your being. I delight that you are here. 
May your happiness deepen and your good fortune continue. It's a way of seeing each other. It's a way of making each other visible. There's a deep respect in this particular translation. When we practice mudita, one of the results of inclining the mind in this way is the healing of loneliness and isolation. We're not so on our own. It's a way of moving into a sense of interconnectedness. Inclining the mind towards gratitude is the last way I'll speak about as a way to encourage the bubbling up of spontaneous joy within the heart. To allow ourselves to be as grateful as we possibly can be. That old phrase, counting one's blessings. When Thich Nhat Hanh, when Thai was um, recovering from the um, stroke or heart attack that he had, yeah, heart attack, stroke, stroke Stroke that he had, yeah, I um, checked in at one point and I I, um, had heard that he was was um, conscious, conscious or more aware, and um, and what someone told me is his first words were, "In, out, happy, thank you, <laughs> so happy." This is, yeah, this was without thought. This was without having a lot of brain capacity. This was having huge heart capacity. In, out, happy, thank you, so happy. This is gratitude. This is gratitude. Inclining the mind towards gratitude. This brings about a kind of contentment. A recognition of fullness of heart. This is by Holly Hughes. It's called Mind Wanting More. Only a beige slat of sun above the horizon, like a shade pulled not quite down. Otherwise, clouds, sea rippled here and there, birds reluctant to fly. The mind wants a shaft of sun to stir the gray porridge of clouds, an osprey to stitch sea to sky with its barred wings, some dramatic music, a symphony, perhaps a Chinese gong. But the mind always wants more than it has, one more bright day of sun, one more clear night in bed with the moon, one more hour to get the words right, one more chance for the heart in hiding to emerge from its thicket in dried grasses, as if this quiet day with its tentative light weren't enough, as if joy weren't strewn all around. 
inclining the mind, remembering, remembering the possibility of joy, remembering that we have what we need within, and it is now. Let's sit for a moment together, please. This is by Uvanak. The great sea has set me in motion, set me adrift, moving me like a weed in a river. The sky and the strong wind have moved the spirit inside me till I am carried away, trembling with joy. May all beings have ease of mind May all beings know inner joy of heart. May all beings know this joy and share this joy with all other beings in this world. Thank you so much for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.